welcome to the History of the Klondike Gold Rush podcast, episode 13, Bennett to Dawson and a Leaky Boat. I'm Pascal Halliday. And I'm Keith Halliday. Today we'll pick back up the journey of New York journalist and Klondike stampeder Tappan Adney. He's finally, as narrated in earlier episodes, made it across the mountain passes into the Yukon River watershed to the shores of Lake Lindemann in September 1897, to be precise. Lindman, today a lovely campground along the Chilkoot Trail, nestled in classic Yukon pine and spruce forest, was at that point a bustling mini-boat-building community. Adney found around 60 boats under construction. Many more were being built a bit further down the trail and on the other side of the short but treacherous Lindman River at Bennett. There were half a dozen saw pits in action in Lindman as stampeders cut their own planks from local trees. People generally built their own boats at Lindman. At Bennett, There was already a mini sawmill in action, and you could have your boat custom-built for between $250 and $600. Or you could pay for a place in someone else's boat, $50 for just you, or $125 including your outfit. Adney, as we've recounted, was an experienced boat builder from his youth, and had actually had packers carry specially ordered lumber over the Chilkoot for his boat. After the harsh weather of the Alpine Passes, everyone is happy to be sheltered in the pleasant Yukon forests. However, the line of snow on the mountains on either side of Bennett Lake is only a thousand feet above the level of the lake and getting lower each morning. It's a continual reminder that winter is coming and they need to get to Dawson before ice closes the river. Six to ten boats are leaving daily, with five to ten men each. People are building many different kinds of boats, but the most common is a flat-bottom skiff. About 25 feet long, six feet wide, and slightly flared sides and able to carry two to three tons. These boats sat about two feet deep in the water when they were full, and had oars and a simple mast for a sail, usually made out of a canvas tarp. The steps to build such a boat are the following. First, you need to find logs. This keeps getting harder as people cut down the most easily accessible trees. You can go a few miles away and raft the logs or carry them through the forest. Then you have to build a sawpit, or use one left behind by stampeders ahead of you. This is a simple kind of platform 10 to 12 feet high. The log goes on the platform with one man on top and the other underneath with a long whipsaw. Then you saw the tree lengthways to make planks. Whipsawing was hard work, especially for the guy underneath getting the sawdust in his face. It was also famous as a point of friction between partners. Invariably, each partner thought the other was slacking. Our website, klondikegoldrush.org, has a link to some photos that show just why. The Yukon spruce tree was smaller and lower quality than the wood many of the men were used to working with back home. Planks were seldom more than 10 inches wide, and usually about one inch thick. They planed the edges so they fit together more smoothly. Once the planks have been put on the side of the boat ribs, they use oakum, old long underwear, and pitch to keep the water out. However, the wood has just been cut and is green, so it shrinks as it dries. Most put a few slabs on the bottom of the boat to keep the goods out of the water leaking in, and bailing is a steady activity. Nails are in short supply at Lindemann and are going for unheard of prices. Ditto for pitch. No one will sell the lumber they worked so hard to cut. On the last day of September, it snowed six inches. Winter was clearly just around the corner. Even after having got this far, some are reconsidering their adventure, selling their outfits, and heading back home. Those still on the trail behind Adney are slogging through huge snow drifts at Crater Lake back in the pass. Adney falls ill, and work on the boat stops for almost a week. This is bad news with winter coming. But by October 5th, the boat is finished. The send-off for each boat at Lindemann is a celebration in camp. Others help carry the boat to the water. They load his 1,500 pounds of outfit into it, and Adney and his expert rower partner Brown set off amid a round of celebratory revolver shots. 
With some rowing and a breeze, they quickly get to the lower end of Lindemann Lake and the rocky Lindemann River that worried so many others enough that they carried their outfits a few more miles and built their boats at Bennett, at the downstream end of Lindemann River. Others are carefully lining their boats, that is, letting them downstream slowly on lines or ropes from either the shore or the shallow water along the edges of the river. But Adney's boating skills from his youth in New Brunswick pays off, as does all that hassle carrying his specially cut boat wood over the Chilkoot. Adney's boat is better designed and better built, and he decides to run the rapids. In his book, you can tell he's rather pleased with himself for accomplishing this, especially since the editor of Forest and Stream magazine happens to walk out of the forest at just the right moment to write up the feat for readers back home. On October 9th, a gale is roaring down Bennett Lake. The lake is notorious for the wind whipping up quickly into dangerous waves. But winter is coming, so Adney and his partner set off anyway. They host their makeshift sail, a sprit sail which didn't have a boom along the bottom. But soon the whitecaps are splashing over the side of the boat and the sail is flapping alarmingly. They take shelter behind a point only a mile down the lake and watch as some bigger boats with square sails scud past going as fast as a train. They land quickly, cut down a tree to be a boom for their sail, and set off again. Soon they're moving quickly down the lake, but Adney knows that if they get sideways to the wind, they'll swamp quickly. Their mass is a strong pine, but is flexing worryingly in the strong wind. The wind pushes their boat to one side, and Adney has to use all of his strength, standing in the stern on a 12-foot steering oar, to stay straight. Waves keep coming over the stern, requiring regular bailing. They pass a party drying out their goods on the shore after a capsize, and other boats sheltering little rocky coves along the way. They keep going, and after 12 miles, the lake narrows. The waves get more dramatic, and crosswaves are breaking sideways over the boat. Suddenly, the mast snaps and goes over the side. They have to go ashore again, cut down a new tree, and make a replacement mast before setting off again. They make it about two-thirds of the way down the lake before evening, when they find a sheltered cove with a sandy beach and camp with a few other boats. The next day, the wind is lighter, but they still make good time. Suddenly, a man on shore with a small boat fires his gun, shouts at them, and gets in his boat to come out. It turned out that he had two partners in his boat, and the sail was nailed to the mast. When the wind became too strong, they had trouble unnailing it as it got darker. In the confusion, one man went overboard, and the man's second partner jumped in to save him. Neither were seen again. Then, amazingly, the man offers Adney's partner Brown half of his outfit to leave Adney behind and join him instead. Brown, to Adney's relief, refuses, and they leave the man to row his boat back to shore. Undoubtedly, many similar tales of unprepared stampeders went unrecorded. The big Yukon lakes were, as hard as it is to believe, even less forgiving of mistakes than the White Pass or Chilkoot Trail. Adney and Brown continued sailing along Bennett Lake and through the narrows at what is now Carcross, known as Caribou Crossing at the time. After that is Tagish Lake, in particular Windy Arm, notorious then as now for storms coming up from the mountain passes to the south. Instead, for Adney and Brown, it is eerily calm. Brown, the California rowing champion, works at the oars and they move steadily, unlike many larger boats that are bigger but less sleek. This is much to Adney's satisfaction. Not only is his decision to design his own boat paying off again, but so is his decision to pick a rower for a partner when they were back on the Chilkoot Pass. Adney and Brown are even able to troll for trout and catch a nice 20-inch trout for dinner. Other parties are also yanking fish out of the lake, sometimes a half a dozen or more. Yukon anglers will note that it's a bit harder to catch trout in Windy Arm today. After a bit more rowing and some duck shooting, they reach the Six Mile or Tagish River in Canadian Customs. As an aside, 
People often wonder why Canadian Customs was located at Tagish, around 60 miles or 100 kilometers as the crow flies from the U.S. border. It was because the Canadian government wanted to catch all the people who came over the passes from Skagway and Dai, including any that might have headed northeast directly to Tushai or Tagish Lakes, instead of going through Lindemann and Bennett. Indeed, at one point, some officials thought the Tushai and Tagish route might be the main one. A few months after Adney passed through, in the middle of winter actually, Canada sent Northwest Mounted Police legend Sam Steele to establish another customs post at the summit of the Chilkoot Trail. But when Adney went through, the custom post was still at Tagish. A customs official and squad of Northwest Mounted Policemen processed those passing through. The customs building is actually a log cabin with walls three feet high and a tent on top, with a wood stove inside. The officials both do their business and sleep there. This is where having bought your goods in Victoria or Vancouver paid off, assuming you still had the seals and paperwork to prove it. U.S. hardware was taxed at 30%, provisions 15-20%, to 20%, tobacco at 50 cents per pound, and so on. The Canadian official is trying to be reasonable, since he knows most of the stampeders have spent most of their cash getting over the pass. He assesses duties based on a statement by the stampeder, seldom surging their boats. If they don't have any cash at all, a day or two labor in the customs woodpile can suffice for payment. The weather is still nice, but then the customs cook, an old-time sourdough, tells everyone that winter is coming. They might make it to the Whitehorse Rapids, or maybe Lake Labarge before ice comes, but he's not sure about any farther than that. The head of the Northwest Mounted Police at Tagish, Darcy Strickland, after whom Strickland Street in Whitehorse is named, tells everyone that for the past three years the Yukon River has frozen by October 13th. That night was October 12th. The customs officials go around the campfires at night so everyone can leave first thing in the morning. One boat leaves at midnight. Adney sticks around Tagish until noon, hoping that boats with some friends will arrive. Seeing no sign of them, they decide to leave. That night, at 9 p.m., partway along Marsh Lake, they decide to land for the night. They discover thin shore ice coming out 20 feet and roll along to another spot to camp. But, instead of bedding down, they decide to quickly cook dinner and then set out in the darkness again. However, after a few minutes, they run into more ice. They head farther out into the lake. More ice. They poke holes in the ice with the oars and force the boat forward. It's tough work, but they find open water before having to go through two more belts of thin but very worrying ice. They know the outlet of the lake may be full of ice already, and they may be stuck here for the winter. In the morning, they land for a quick nap and spread their blankets under some spruces. There's three inches of snow on the ground. Fortunately, when dawn breaks, they make it to the mouth of the Yukon River and begin moving downstream. No other boats are in sight. As anyone who's paddled through that part of the river will know, the current isn't too fast after Marsh Lake. Adney and Brown are worried. Luckily, the current begins to pick up. They pass another night on shore amid the snow and pass another boat wrecked on a rock before they arrive at Canyon City, Miles Canyon, and the White Horse Rapids shortly afterwards. Boats are lined up along the shore, their occupants are either walking ahead to check out the rapids in Miles Canyon or have already decided to unload and portage. Miles Canyon is well known to be dangerous, and Adney and Brown survey the swirling waters and steep basalt walls. There's a photo of Pascal's great-great-grandfather, Tony Sear, guiding a raft through the rapids. One of the reasons he never made it to Dawson was that he stayed here and piloted boats through Miles Canyon and the rapids, something that was lucrative after Adney passed through when the Northwest Mounted Police made it mandatory to have a pilot. Adney says the rates were $10 to $20 per boat when he passed through. They went up to $25 a boat the next year when the Northwest Mounted Police rules came into effect. 
Adney watches the boat go through with two men on side oars, one with a bow oar and one with a stern oar. Feeling confident in the quality of their boat, they decide not to unload but to run the canyon fully loaded to save time. They secure a tarp over the cargo and set off. Adney's account is worth quoting at length. Quote, When Brown has seated himself at the oars and said, Already, we push off and head for the gateway. I think I notice a slight tightening of Brown's mouth, but that's all, as he dips the oars and begins to make the long stroke. But perhaps he can retaliate by saying some unkind thing about me at this time. As soon as we're at the very brink, we know it's too late to turn back. So when we slide down the first pitch, I head her into the seething crest. At the first leap into the soap suds, the spray flies several feet outward from the flaring sides. A dozen or two lunges into the crest of the waves, and we know we shall ride it out. All at once, it must be we are not exactly in the middle. The boat's nose catches in an eddy, and we swing around, head upstream. It's a simple matter to turn her nose again into the current, and then go on again, leaping and jumping with terrific force. Brown, who manages the oars splendidly, keeps dipping them, and a few minutes we emerge from between the narrow walls into an open basin. It's worth pointing out that an estimated 300 boats were wrecked in Miles Canyon or the White Horse Rapids during the gold rush, and not everyone made it through as well as Adney and Brown. Indeed, most of the boats were not as well built and did not enjoy either a champion rower or an experienced whitewater expert at the stern. Adney and Brown have the good sense to pull ashore after Miles Canyon to check out the White Horse Rapids. Not liking the look of them, they take the cargo out of the boat, leaving just a thousand pounds in the bottom. Then they run the rapids, finding bigger waves and more pitching than in Miles Canyon. Let's return to Adney's account. Quote, As we jump from wave to wave, it seems positively as if boat and all would keep right on going through to the bottom of the river. The water even now is pouring in, and it's plain the boat will never live through. One thought alone comforts us. The fearful impetus with which we are moving must surely take us bodily through and out, and then we can make the shore somehow. I count the seconds that will take us through. The effect to the eye, as we enter the great whitecaps, is that of a jumping, not only up and down, but from the sides to the middle. Now we are in. From sides and ends, a sheet of water pours over, drenching brown and filling the boat. The same instant, it seems, a big side wave takes the little craft, spins her like a top, quick as a wink, and throws her into a boiling eddy on the left. We are through and safe. They pull their boat over to the shore, finding a nice sandy beach. Many of the trees are inscribed with humorous, or not-so-humorous, messages from those who have passed before. Adney estimates that 40 people have drowned here since the first prospectors started coming through in the decade previous. In June 1898, the season after Adney went through, thousands of stampeders and their boats built up into a huge traffic jam at Canyon City, the gold rush boomtown that had leapt into existence on the right bank just upstream of Miles Canyon. Between the ramshackle nature of the boats and the inexperience of their occupants, it was clearly a series of accidents waiting to happen. Yukon broadcasting legend Les McLaughlin has made a series of wonderful short radio segments on Yukon history. He points out that the only thing that surprised Northwest Mounted Police Superintendent Steele was the relative small number of deaths. Steele wrote later, quote, Why more casualties have not occurred is a mystery to me. Steele issued an order that boats had to have an experienced pilot to run the rapids. The fee was $25 a boat, a hefty sum in those days, and the penalty for trying to dodge the fee was the seizure of your outfit. Compared to the lack of government presence in Skagway, it's an interesting example of the different approach the U.S. and Canadian governments took on either side of the border. That great-great-grandfather mentioned earlier, Tony Sear, was an experienced boatsman and lumberman from eastern Canada. 
He and his brother had hiked the Chilkoot, but ended up staying around Miles Canyon and making a good living piloting boats through the canyon. There's a picture of him running a raft through Miles Canyon on our website, klondikegoldrush.org. Even before Sam Steele and Tony Sear got to Canyon City and Miles Canyon, someone else had spotted the opportunity. In the fall of 1897, around the same time Adney passed through, a stampeder named Norman McCauley arrived. Instead of continuing to the Klondike, he built a roadhouse at Canyon City, near the beginning of the Portage Trail down the east bank around the rapids. Over that winter, he built a simple wooden tramway with the help of a crew of 18 men and some horses, covering five miles or about eight kilometers. He then charged you three cents a pound and $25 for your boat to have his horse pull your outfit on a wooden tram car with metal wheels riding on log rails. It was simple but effective, and operating almost 24 hours a day at the peak of the rush generated handsome revenues for Macaulay. So lucrative, in fact, that another fellow named Hepburn built a similar setup on the west bank of the river. But these tramways were short-lived. The White Pass Railway was on the way, and in August 1899, it bought Macaulay's tramway for the stunning sum of $185,000. They really wanted to control all the routes to the Klondike and make sure as many people as possible used the railway. You can still see the remains of both tramways. We'd highly recommend doing one of the Yukon Conservation Society's summer walking tours around Miles Canyon and Canyon City. Getting back to Adney and his adventures, the day after running the rapids and after drying out their boat, they continued with the current past the Dakini River and into Lake LaBarge, getting stuck on a sandbar at one point. They encounter a First Nations camp on the shore of Lake LaBarge before continuing on. They shoot a loon and boil it for dinner on the shore. Adney and Brown are again lucky with the weather and start in one of those rare days when Lake LaBarge is not howling with wind. After lunch, the wind does whip up as those who boat on LaBarge will, will be familiar with, and they get out their sail. They move quickly down the 30-mile or 50-kilometer-long lake, thanks to the tailwind, and keep going into the evening, despite the fading light. They fear that if they linger too long on the water that night, they will get either bad weather or frozen in or both. So, finally, they steer for a campfire they see at the far end of the lake, which turns out to be near where the Yukon River, known as the 30-mile river along this stretch, leaves the lake, and they make it to shore. As those who have paddled the 30-mile will know, the current picks up briskly. Good news for Adney, who was constantly worrying about when freeze-up would happen, but also raising the risk of hitting a rock or some other mishap. The river broadens and is less dangerous after the Teslin River joins, but Adney and his partner remain hard at the oars, trying to make as much time as possible. They pass one boat that even has its wood stove set up on board, so they don't have to go ashore to cook. The temperature is now below freezing, even in the daytime and a chilling wind is coming from the north, head on. Snow can be seen on the shore. They sleep on the riverbank and don't cook much, hard tack and rolled oat mush, served with condensed milk and sugar maybe with some flapjacks. Around the Big Salmon, another river coming in from the right, they run into their first mush ice floating down the river. They continue rowing and notice their boat is beginning to leak more. They reach Five Finger and Rink Rapids, and having heard many times which channels to take, after a quick reconnoiter from the shore, they sweep quickly through. Adney is steadily passing other boats steered by people with less river experience. They're constantly running aground on gravel bars or spending far longer than needed scouting obstacles like Five Finger Rapids. One boat that attempted Five Finger Rapids by being roped through was swamped, and the crew lost all of their pork and flour. By now, it's the 22nd of October, more than a week after that date, the 13th of October, when they'd been told the river usually freezes up. 
They row past Robert Campbell's old home at Fort Selkirk, where, in addition to the First Nations community, an Alaska commercial company post and Anglican missionaries can be found. Adney lands to check out the store and sees a sign saying that no steamer has been to Fort Selkirk in two years, and the store has no food to sell except condensed milk at a dollar a can. The man named Pitts, running the store, turns out to be an old-time sourdough and, although gruff, invites them to spend the night in his cabin. After frozen riverbanks, this is luxury, especially when the scotch bottle comes out and they exchange stories late into the night. Pitts has been keeping track of the boats and estimates 3,600 people have passed on their way to the Klondike. He says he's amazed by the number who are unprepared, inexperienced, without food, or even worse, common sense. Many seem to think there are regularly scheduled steamboats bringing food to Dawson City. Pitts asked Adney if his partner had an outfit for a year. Adney said he didn't and was planning to work hard and buy food. Pitts replies, quote, That is a very foolish thing for him to do. Many people are short, and many more may have to leave before spring. The time was when it would go hard with the man who was responsible for bringing in a person like that. Adney mulls Pitt's words and thinks Pitt is justified to think that to deliberately come without enough food is hardly short of a crime against every other man in camp. But it's too late to turn back. The next morning, it's too foggy to safely navigate the increasingly ice-filled river. The temperature has plunged overnight to 5 below Fahrenheit, minus 20 Celsius. By noon, with half the day gone, the fog lifts and they continue. Lumps of soft and hard ice float into the Yukon from the Pelly River. The air is so cold that ice forms on the oars as they are lifted with each stroke, and they have to stop rowing regularly to bang off the ice. That night, a huge ice flow smashes into their boat as they are cooking dinner on the bank, and they have to scramble to unload it and pull it to safety. Adney writes that their little boat seems to stand between them and life or death. They stand forlornly on the shore, watching the northern lights and listening to the ice flows grinding past. Getting to Dawson seems hopeless. They push off the next morning, and are carried along by the ice flows. Adney's planning pays off again, since their two-ended boat is better than most other boats. They can steer it in both directions to squeeze through ice and find more open water. Adney's boat catches up, much to his pleasure, with the boat containing his competitor from the New York Times. The hard rowing of Adney's partner and Adney's skill navigating the double-ended boat has paid off. The New York Times man left Bennett a week ahead of them. They get caught in big ice floes near the White River, and their boat is tilted over with the gunnels barely above the water. All seems lost, but the ice suddenly shifts and they float on. They pass Stewart, where 40 boats are drawn up on the shore. Many intended to spend the winter at Stewart, since they've heard that the creeks at Dawson were fully staked up and that food there was short. Others had hoped to get to Dawson, but decided it was safer to change plans and stay at Stewart. They decide to keep going, and on October 27th are rewarded with above-freezing temperatures. But the river is still full of ice. First, they are almost smashed on ice projecting off an island dividing the river into two channels, then barely escape being pushed by the ice into sweepers, trees that have fallen over where the river has undermined their roots. They pass another boat on the shore, and the man shouts that they are just 55 miles from Dawson, and to stick to the right to avoid being swept past. Annoyed at all the bad advice they have got before, they decide to stick to the left. They spend another frigid night on a riverbank and spend some time melting and chipping ice off the boat in their gear. The ice is four inches thick on the sides and bottom of the boat, making it extra heavy to row. They set off and, facing a north wind, end up heading for the right bank instead of the left. Just a mile from their camp, they round a turn and see a crowd of tents, boats, and people on the right bank. They call out, 
How far is it to Dawson? The response amazes them. This is Dawson, and if they don't get paddling, the current will carry them past. They row quickly to shore and land in Dawson City. Adney writes, quote, It is the 31st of October, 108 days since the Excelsior's arrival at San Francisco, and 92 days since we joined the Klondike Stampede. If you like this episode, please tell a friend and rate us on Apple Podcasts. If you really like the episode, please go to our website, which also has links and maps about this episode, and make a donation. That's klondikegoldrush.org. Even a few bucks helps cover the costs of equipment and hosting. We didn't do this podcast to get rich, but, as an old miner might say, it would be nice to make enough to get our grub steak back. <laughs> <laughs>